This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. So, good evening from Jerusalem, and uh, welcome everybody. Uh, we are in the middle of the 10 days of awe in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, our little discussion tonight is literally going to be on the Day of, of Atonement, or uh, as it actually is in the text, Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Atonements. It's actually in plural. Uh, but before we begin, uh, we shall start with prayer, uh, acknowledging the Lord's presence, acknowledging His kingship, and delighting in the Spirit's presence uh, in our discussion. So, Brother Neville, would you be able to pray us in? Yeah, yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your mercies that are new every morning. Lord, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together around your word. We pray, Lord, that you would enable Aaron to speak with confidence and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us also to, to be taught by you as you promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, tonight's uh, uh, talk, I gave it a title. Um, some people in America wanted one. It's called Rituals, Atonements, Forgiveness, and Repentance. And uh, we are in Yom Kippur, year 5781. This is the most sacred of days in the Jewish calendar. And uh, for those that um, have been to Israel, they'll notice that on Yom Kippur, everything will close and the roads will be essentially silent of moving vehicles. Uh, one of the delights of children is to run around the streets that you couldn't normally do on your scooters and mopeds and bikes and go for a walk. Even the traffic lights will take a rest on this Sabbath. They will all stop working and start flashing intermittently orange uh, as they themselves stop from uh, working and directing cars, which they would normally, normally be doing. Uh, Israeli television will cease and even Netflix will join in the solemnness of the day by refusing to give you any service. And uh, um, for such an important day, you know, it's one of the two high holy days, the other one Rosh Hashanah and this one Yom Kippur, for such an important day, the Bible actually provides very few details on how you're supposed to conduct the day. So we will look at the texts that are actually there and then we will discuss them and then we will go into some of the traditions and then we will see how that, uh, uh, that affects the, the believers, how that affects the body of the, of the Messiah. All right. Um, so let's have a look at uh, the actual text as we know it in, at the beginning in Leviticus. There are two texts in Leviticus that we'll read, Leviticus 23 and Leviticus 16. And then we'll start asking, asking some questions. So Leviticus 23, uh, uh, beginning at verse 26. So the Lord says to Moses, the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly, deny yourselves, and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day, because it is the day of atonement, when atonement is made for you before the Lord. Those who do not delight themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy 
from among them, their people, who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Shabbat. All right, that's the... Uh, the short bit of information that you have in Leviticus. All right, so just from the initial reading from Leviticus, and for those of us who have been wrestling with Deuteronomy, let's also note this is not in Deuteronomy. Moses has nothing to say about Yom Kippur in Deuteronomy, nor has he said anything about Rosh Hashanah. Remember the chapter 16 only mentioned the pilgrim festivals did not mention the high holidays for whatever reason. And when we go back to studying Moses, we can ask some of those questions. Okay, but just from an initial reading, what do we see that we're supposed to do? The ESV says afflict yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Oh, yes. That would, be, that would be the more correct translation. So the first thing we do, okay, the first thing we notice, that is on the 10th of the seventh month, and in English, in pretty much every English translation, it's called the Day of Atonement. But in Hebrew, it's Yom Kippurim, which means it's in plural. Okay, of the coverings? Yes. Well, that's the thing. Here's a, here's a, so, Nama, you're our local Israeli Hebrew speaker. Okay. What's the verb to cover in Hebrew? Nachon, kisui, right? Yes? Is a covering. Okay. It's a different verb. We often say, um, the Day of Atonement's lechafer, lechafer is to cover. Well, it's biblical Hebrew. We're not actually 100% sure what it means, just so everybody knows. Okay? There, there isn't a consensus on, on, on what the, the actual biblical Hebrew word means. The verb to cover is not le kafer or le kafer. It's uh, le kisot, le kasot. Kisui is a covering. So what is this Yom HaKippurim? Not 100% sure, but we call it the Day of Atonement, okay? Jewish people do as well as, as, the, as Gentile Christians. So let's just keep it that off to one side for a moment. We can call it Day of Atonement. However, it's in plural. It's actually the Day of Atonements in, 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 the, in the plural. And let's also remember that uh, one of the questions we need to ask is the Messiah, whom we all say is our atoning sacrifice, does not come at Yom Kippur. He comes uh, at Passover. And so we'll have to discuss that issue. So we're going to uh, wrestle with a few things. So the first thing we understand is that we've actually got some, a plurality of atonements that are going on. So we've got a few commands. Hold a sacred assembly. All right. So, any idea what you do when you do that? We have no clue. Right. It's, it's it. Just, just hold the sacred assembly and do what? 
many times in the Bible, we, we are not given exact commands or instructions as to how you hold a sacred assembly. Aaron, may I ask a question? Sorry to interrupt. Is if, if it seems to be uh, uh, almost exactly like a Sabbath, because there's also a death penalty involved here, right? There is. There is a death penalty involved. In uh, It's called the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Okay? This is like the highest of Sabbaths. Um, normally, uh, you are not allowed to fast on the Sabbath. Okay? The Sabbath trumps all other holidays except for the two high holidays, the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, you can move any other festival around a Sabbath, but you can't move Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. They fall, and if they fall on Shabbat, they fall on Shabbat. That's the way it is. Um, that's why they're called the high, high Sabbaths. And normally, you're not allowed to fast on a Sabbath, but you do if it's Yom Kippur. So if Yom Kippur falls on a Sabbath, you will fast. Right? Okay. And um, so... Yeah, Bernardo, we did, we did mention that uh, last time. Rosh Hashanah, yes, is the first of the month. Correct, uh, as it says in the Bible. However, the tradition today is it's now, now, now uh, Yom Teruah. Uh, but we discussed that again, and we acknowledged that last, last week. So uh, this is a, a high Sabbath, and you fast even if it is a Shabbat. And you also are given the death penalty, which is the same as that you find in, in Exodus, that if you break the Shabbat, you get a death penalty. And here in, in Leviticus, you also get a death penalty. Um, but gather together in assembly. I don't tell you what to do. It just says gather. So if you don't have a clear instruction as to what to do when you gather, what do you do? Make it up. Make it up. Yeah, and you can figure out, maybe we can pray. Maybe there are some psalms. Maybe there's special clothing that you wear. And so what's the special clothing that we're all going to wear on, um, on Yom Kippur? White. Why wear white? I hear you ask. Okay. Um, so it's just, it's, it's gonna, we, it, it has a symbol of purity and from Isaiah our sins will become as white as snow so it's a it's a a, a lot of uh, Jewish people will will wear white some will also wear the kittel which is their uh, the shroud the white shroud that they're buried in okay so some people as a tradition as they walk to their synagogues mainly men when you go out on Yom Kippur, you will mo mainly see men go to the synagogue, although that, they don't forbid women from going, but it's an obligation for all men to go. And uh, some of them will wear their, their kittel, their white shroud, that they'll be buried in when they actually die, which is a very interesting thing. Aaron, quick question. How, how far back does this tradition of wearing white go? To, is there a I looked for it. I couldn't find it. All I could find was this tradition of wearing the white death shroud. And I was like, okay, I would love to find a second temple period talk about this because then I could make all kinds of New Testament allegory, but I couldn't. But I'll keep looking if anybody happens to find one. I'd love, I'd love to know. And I'll plagiarize you for all eternity. Okay. Don't, don't. Don't people also wear white at Rosh Hashanah 
I'm yes, sure. you also wear white at Rosh Hashanah. The two high holidays, you wear white, and in and in the uh, church, Catholic and traditional churches, then um, there's white worn on uh, things like Easter, baptism of Jesus, circumcision of Jesus, various days they call um, Christ festivals or festivals of the Messiah. Then the, the color turns from whatever the normal liturgical color is to white. And... Uh, it's something that we inherited from the, from the Jewish people. But white you wear Rosh Hashanah and white you wear at, uh, on Yom Kippur, even, it, even though it is one of the more, most solemn days. So hold a sacred assembly and do what? Don't know, going to make it up. So now we have five prayers that we're going to pray. And here is a little picture of the uh, Siddur. Okay, this is the prayer book for... Um, Yom Kippur contains all the prayers. I'm going to read one of them, very interesting one, a little bit, little bit later. Normally, in a, on a Shabbat, you have three prayers that you pray. At Rosh Hashanah, you add a fourth. On Yom Kippur, you add a fifth. Okay, so you have five, five, five special prayers. Um, the first one you'll start with on uh, the evening will be called Kol Nidre, which means all vows, where you will start by saying that all vows that I am going to make are null and void. And you think, what? Ha I mean, come on. Why, why would you say such a thing? It's an Aramaic prayer. Okay? It is not a Hebrew prayer. So Jewish people are going to get together on Sunday night, there's a Yom Kippur is going to be Sunday night, and they're going to pray a prayer called Kol Nidre in Aramaic. And uh, why? I don't know. They, they don't bother to translate into Hebrew. They just do it in, in, in Aramaic, and it means all vows, and it literally says uh, the vows that I'm going to make, they are, they are null and void. Why do you think they would say such a thing? Is there a teaching of the Messiah that reflects this idea of not saying oaths? I mean, we all say oaths. What oath do we, that we all love to say as families? Our marriage vows. Okay? We, we all make oaths. We make, when, when we dedicate our children, we make oaths and promises. Uh, even though we are told don't make oaths, we do make oaths. And the Shema is a kind of oath as well. It is. The Shema is an oath. So oaths in and of themselves are not bad. Okay? So what, do, what, what and too, too often people who don't understand the Jewish mindset look at this prayer called Kol Nidre, which is said every, every Yom Kippur and has been for a very long time because it's in Aramaic. And they say, look, these Jews can't be trusted. They're always breaking their oaths. They're oath breakers. But that's not what the prayer means. I know what it says because it actually does say all oaths I've made, they're null and void. But try and, try and think of, a, of a, the intention of, of what they're trying to say. Okay. All right. Yeah, Kathy, Kathy said it could it be the word curses people out of anger or ignorance. Could be. Um, uh, what, what, what does Yeshua say when he's teaching people about oaths? He says, don't uh, take oaths, but make sure your yes means yes and your no means no. Yes. Now, he, what he's not saying is don't make marriage vows, is he? Because none of us get married by standing before a priest and going, uh, yes. 
and that's it. And well, that was over. That took a whole 10 seconds, okay? 10 seconds to walk down to the front, say yes, turn around, come back. Okay, it was a very boring service. No, we have all kinds of uh, ways to get married. We make all kinds of vows. People write out their vows. They've got all kinds of things. Um, that's not what Yeshua is teaching. So what do you think he's saying when let your yes be yes and your no be no? I think he's wanting to elevate the level of the quality of your word from in conversation up to the, up to the severity of oath-taking without needing to do it. Uh, also yes. accountability. Accountability, yes, yep, also that. Absolutely, anything else? That's, uh... So Jewish people take oaths very seriously and they understand that too often they make oaths to God that they certainly can't keep. You know, look, Lord, here we're going to start a new day. You know, I, I promise you I'm going to read the Bible every day. And then they don't. And uh, hang on a second, but I've just made a promise. And so they start the year by saying, Lord, I know I'm going to make stupid promises and I'm really sorry. But let my yes be yes and my no be no. That's actually what they're saying. Okay? They're not saying all my vows are null and void. What they're saying is when I make stupid vows, please forgive me. Just guard my tongue. One of the other prayers you pray on, on Yom Kippur is called Al-Chet, all sins. And you do pray very heavily for forgiveness. And in this prayer called Al-Chet, which is said the next day, it has 44 statements of sins. Forgive me for the sin of this. Forgive me for the sin of that. Most of them have to do with the tongue. And so what's very interesting is the acknowledgement that is actually the tongue that is largely the source of all of our sinning. Not all of it, but a large portion of it. You know, from out of the mouth comes the intention of the heart. It's not what goes in your mouth that's important. It's what comes out, says Jesus. You can sort of see a very similar thing being, being done here. Uh, so, you know, gather together in assembly and say, start saying all these things. Uh, and then you get these traditions of how, how, how you do them. The next thing is, uh, in my version, I've got deny yourselves, but the ESV, which I'm, I'm liking even more and more every time I read it or hear somebody else read it, um, is afflict. Yes, you've got the word afflict. Okay. Um, is... Uh, is how do you afflict yourself? What do you think that means? What does it mean by fasting? Fasting. Sure. That could be. It doesn't actually say fast. Right? Let's remember, the, the word to fast isn't actually in the first five books of Moses. Right? There's no command fast. No, later. That's, that's kind of what it means, no, Aaron? It, it's like no I one, say, okay, I'm going to sleep, and yeah. it's kind of implied that I'm going to put on my pajamas and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't say fast; it just says afflict. And so Jewish people try and figure out what does it mean to actually afflict. Let, let's do everything that I that I let's do the opposite to everything I really want to do. I want to drink. I want to eat. I won't do those. Um, I I, I want to have fun. I won't do that. I want to wear certain clothes. I won't do that. You know, I've uh, got a very attractive wife. I would like to have a special cuddle. Won't do that. 
And so the affliction of your soul creates this, uh, this day of, of fasting. And like every Shabbat, because Yom Kippur is the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the day is 25 hours long. Right? So in Jewish tradition, the Shabbat, she's 25 hours long. You, you have a look at the lighting of candle time when they have the little signs up on all the bus stops and it shows you Shabbat starts at, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon and it will end at five o'clock the next afternoon. They love the Sabbath so much, they give it an extra hour, which means Sunday in Jewish tradition is only 23 hours long. Okay, it's a, it's a day. Okay? He had to give one day to, to Shabbat. And so for Yom Kippur, it's the same. 25 hours of no, no eating or drinking. Uh, you, don't, you don't shower. You don't, you don't comb your hair. You don't brush your teeth. I mean, that's pretty bad, huh? Um, uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't do anything that involves self-beautification. Uh, no anointing in oil. You know, no putting perfumes on. No, no, no makeup. No nothing. You don't cut your beard. You don't, you don't shave. You just... And you wear uh, special clothing. In fact, sometimes they wear their, their prayer shroud, their death shrouds, and uh, and then and then you go and, and you go and pray. However, despite all the tension of um, oh that seems so bad, that seems um, uh, uh, very heavy, the promise is quite impressive because uh, the Leviticus is going to say in sixteen. We'll read it in a minute. On that day, you will be cleansed from all your sins. So there is a nice assurance okay, that comes with, with all of this, all the suffering. Okay, so we've got to, we've got to fast, and, um, and then there's this uh, uh, affliction. And you also have to do what? And present? What does your translation say, Neville? I know you've got an ESV there. Um, which verse? Uh, verse two, uh, 27. Hold a sacred assembly, afflict yourselves, and... And present a food offering to the Lord. Okay, a food offering. Okay, um, it's a it's also it's a, a food offering of fire. Okay, you present a fire offering. Why fire? Do you think purification? Could be. Sure. Okay. So not 100% sure, but let's, let's keep that on the back burner. But it could be purification. Fire definitely purifies. Okay. It doesn't list all of the other, like in this little portion in Leviticus, what else is not there? None of the other sacrifices yet. We've got that a little bit later. and we'll, um, uh, Then you get that, uh, this commandment that you will be, there's a, there's, a, there's a death penalty that is involved in the breaking of the Sabbath. And then it goes from evening, evening to evening. So let's have a look at Leviticus 16. Quick, quick question, Aaron. The, this idea of also not drinking as well as not eating, was that current in uh, Second Temple period or First Temple period? You know, uh, Isaiah 58 talks about the acceptable fast of the Lord. Yep. Would people have understood that instruction at the, at, in Isaiah's time as to mean not to drink? That's a good question. I, I scoured um, Jewish websites looking for how, how far back the current Yom Kippur uh, practices were. And I, and I couldn't find them. Like, uh, the, we, we have to acknowledge that 
like uh, the New Testament does not mention Yom Kippur. Uh, the Pir Kayavot doesn't mention Yom Kippur. A lot of early Jewish texts don't mention them. It comes, comes a little later. And you scratch your head to think, okay, now why is that? Um, that's not to say it's not important because it does show up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which means that Jewish people 100 years before Yeshua were doing something. I'm not, we're not 100% sure what that was. So it's a really good question. I couldn't find it. Um, but if anybody does have a very early document, would love to know where it is, but I haven't, haven't personally found one. Okay, so let's go to, to uh, uh, Leviticus 16, which gives you the most detail about the day. It is mentioned again in Numbers 29, but there it's only a paragraph. There it only mentions sacrifices and doesn't tell you why you do them. Right? In, in Numbers 29, it just lists, these are the animals you're going to kill on Yom Kippur. And it gives you no reason why. And that's it. Okay, but Leviticus gives you the most detail, and Deuteronomy gives you none. All right, so let's have a look at the first uh, verses of Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement. Again, it's in plural. Okay, it's the Day of Atonements. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. How did the sons of Aaron die? The Lord killed them. They offered a strange fire. They offered strange fire and then they were killed. And yet here in Leviticus 20, 23, it says, have a sacred assembly, afflict your soul, and make an offering of fire. Now, isn't that interesting? Okay, so in Leviticus 16, we have the background that the Lord is speaking to Moses. Okay, it's after the unfortunate incident where uh, two of Aaron's sons uh, offer what's called false fire, whatever that means. And they are then consumed by fire. Okay. The Lord says to Moses, this is verse 2, 16. The Lord says to Moses, tell your brother Aaron. He doesn't talk to Aaron directly, although sometimes he does. <laughs> Even though Aaron is the high priest, right? He's not getting direct communication. Even though the high priest is the one wearing the breastplate, okay, that everybody's going to come to to get wisdom from God. Aaron still going to have to wait for a mediator, even for him. Okay, he's going to have to get uh, Moshe to come and talk to him. The Lord says to Moshe, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain, behind the parochet, in front of the uh, atonement cover or the, the kaporet. Uh, what does uh, ESV have? It must have mercy seat, doesn't mercy it? Yes, yeah, that's the best translation. Okay, that's... That's the, the mercy seat's a good, good translation for it. Okay. Um, or, or else he will die. Woof. Okay. So um, good warning, okay, uh, especially in light of what's just happened to his kids. And so there's um, a bit of, bit of background for our, our little brother Aaron here. This is how Aaron is going to enter the most holy place. Okay. The, when he gets into the, the, the heichal, behind the parochet. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering, 
and a ram for a burnt offering, okay, the one that uh, gets all burnt up. And he is to put on the sacred linen tunic, so he's got some special clothing with the linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. So it describes the, the priestly garments, which we've spent a lot of detail in Exodus uh, uh, building. These are the sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Okay, even though, what don't you do in modern Yom Kippur? Oh. Don't bath, that's right. Okay, but the high priest better, okay, but everybody else no, right? So you've got Moses talking to Aaron sort of privately. Uh, it's after a very horrible incident with the death of his family. It does involve fire, okay, and it does involve getting ready to go behind the parochet with special clothing and a bath when nobody else is allowed to in modern tradition. From the Israelite community, he has to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Okay, so he's got a list of, list of different sacrifices there. Um, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement, okay, for himself and his household. So who gets atoned first? Aaron. Yeah. A high priest. The high priest. So the first atonement that happens at a, in Yom, on, on the Day of Atonements is the high priest and his house are done. Okay, and it's done by, by blood of a bull. Then is to take the two goats and is present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Although I know that the ESV has a different word there. As Azel. Yes, well done. The word only occurs in Leviticus 16. Yes, this is it. Okay, and, uh, and so we've got these two goats, one for Adonai, okay, and one for Azazel. Who is Azazel? I hear you ask. Okay. So what do you think? Well, an option is a place in the desert or even a desert demon. Yeah, and so um, to many of our translate, most of our translations will translate Azazel as a, a wilderness place, like send the goat to the wilderness, or they'll call it the scapegoat, which is not what Azazel means. Okay, okay, where's that? Nama Azazel. Mahamashmu'ud la Azazel. Bi-ba'anglit. Okay. Az, what is it? What's the, what's the meaning of Azazel, Mazazel? Bold, courageous. Right. This, it's, it's, some, it's some form of strong, Az, uh, boldness, courage, uh, hero type, El, of God. And so in the Bible, anything with a name that ends in El usually was designated as the name of an angel. And so you end up with um, uh, uh, the book of Enoch, chapter 8, describing that one of the chief Nephilim, one of the chief fallen angels, which is part of the rebellion of Genesis 6, which is not a satanic re rebellion, it's another rebellion. Uh, one of them is called Azazel, and he came down and it, and it uh, lists all the nasty things that he taught man to do. 
And it says that Azazel came down and he taught men how to make war. He taught men how to make iron weapons. He taught men, uh, he, actually, he also taught women how to put makeup on. I'm uh, not quite sure why they snuck that one in there. Uh, but he does some, some, some nasty things. And then um, he gets captured by Michael and he gets buried in the desert. A lot of his other little brother angels get taken down to... Uh, to a special place in Sheol. Later, in Greek, it's called Tartarus, uh, which is reflected in some of the epistles, where it says that uh, the, 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 the spirits, the fallen angels, were tied up and, and taken to Tartarus, and Jesus himself goes to this place and preaches to the fallen, fallen spirits. Aaron, Aaron, sorry, does this mean, is it possible that this means that that is still being atoned for? That's a good question, and we'll have to we'll have to when when we try and sum up everything at the end, hold on to that because we're going to dump the scapegoat on him. Okay, uh, every every single year. Okay, uh, so so you got this. You got this. You got a, a, already. We've got a bull, or we've got a ram. Now we've got two goats, and one of them is going to be for God, and one of them is going to be for this Azazel. And uh, in fact, the, the modern Hebrew has a, uses it as a swear word now, don't they, Nama? Lech Lazazel. Yeah, it's a it's a is a is a modern Very bad Hebrew. One. Yes, it's a, it's a modern Hebrew swear word which you don't want to say to people, and it will remain untranslated on this channel. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, where are we? So he, in verse 6, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, according to his then Then he takes two goats, uh, one for the Lord and one for Azazel. Verse 9, Aaron will take the goat whose lot falls the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat, he shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So it's going to be used as a as a as a atonement thing, whatever that word really means, uh, even though we've already had one. We've already had done one event, which was been for uh, atoning for Aaron and his house. 11, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and take them behind the curtain. So now he goes behind the parochet. He's now in the Holy of Holies and he has gone in with um, incense. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the kaporet, the mercy seat, above the tablets of the covenantal law so that he will not die. Okay. Now, why, why is that going to happen? He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. He, he then shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. This is uh, um, uh, the first time, you know, well, actually the only time that you mention in the Bible that you actually put blood on on the uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, no other time do you do this. And where do you do it? 
On one side, on the front, on the east side. Okay. But you do it out of sight. Yeah, you can't see the mercy seat because of the clouds, right? The, uh, no one in Israel know what knows what Aaron is doing. This whole, this whole ritual, this is a ritual. Okay? God, you know, for, for those of us who come from uh, non-ritual uh, ritual churches, non-traditional churches or non-traditional communities, uh, whether they be Jewish or Christian, um, you have to remember that ritual is something God created. Okay. We might not like it, we might rebel against it, it might give us heart palpitations whenever we're told to do it. But um, um, this is a ritual that no one else sees. Aaron, may, may, may I ask a question here? Is this possibly what Lord Jesus did when he went back up to heaven and sprinkled blood there? In the book of Hebrews, you mean? Yes. yes. Right. Because we don't, I was going to mention that later, but let's do it now. Hebrews 9 talks about this fantastical thing that has occurred in heaven that none of us have seen. And, uh, and, and so there's large sections of our faith that we just do not see. Large sections of the mystery that we will never see. We believe them. We accept them. We know them to be true. We acknowledge their truthfulness but we never actually see them. So the high priest goes in behind the paroche to do a ritual that nobody else sees. Nobody knows if he did it. Nobody knows if he didn't do it. Okay? And uh, um, uh, uh, there you go. All right. Um, so let's have a look here. Where are we at? Okay, so he's going to go in and he's going to ha have to go with incense. Why does he have to bring incense in? To create the cloud over the mercy seat so it's obscured. Right. Now, why does he have to do that? So he doesn't die. <laughs> yeah. But, well, what's going to kill him? Presence of God. Isn't that interesting? God is going to sit within a cloud. God says, I'm going to live go within a cloud and sit on the mercy seat, which is a, an interesting um, uh, thing. Okay. Um, but when God does that, you know, you can't just walk in and go, hey, how you doing? You know, nice to see you. I'll give you a high five. Okay. Um, you actually need this. You've got to have this covering. You've got to you know, obscure the view. Like, um, what is a, I know it says in, in uh, Exodus, uh, no one shall see God and live. Right? God is a consuming fire. Right. Yeah. And so you have this, this, uh, this interesting uh, ritual which no one else sees. You go in and you don't want to see God even though he's right there in front of you. And so you have this, 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 this incense covering. And, uh, and then you, you sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which you never do in any other, other form. It's the only time it happens, and it only happens out of sight of everybody else. Okay. Every, every other Israelite is going to have access to a sacrificial system. They're going to see blood regularly. They're going to partake of their own sacrifices, you know, with the eating and drinking and sharing of uh, the various things. Um, but this ritual is something that is completely secret. It's a mystery. It's a, it's a complete mystery.
So the kaporet, okay, the what we, what we which comes from the verb, uh, the day of atonement. It's probably not hundred percent sure if that actually what it means. Although one really knows what it really means. Um, the mercy seat, where God is living within a cloud. Although Deuteronomy will never mention this, this is only mentioned in Leviticus. Okay, um, uh, it is. Uh, is going to be covered by by incense, and uh, and so in verse fourteen, he's to take some of the blood with his finger, sprinkle it in front of the atonement cover, the kaporet. He will then sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times for the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people. Take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He will sprinkle it on the atonement cover in front of it. So now, so now the covering gets two shots of blood. One bull and one goat. Okay. Now you can probably start to begin to see why Jesus doesn't come at Yom Kippur. The, the, the sheer number of sacrifices that show up, the sheer amounts of different bits of blood, start to get very difficult to start to figure out which one of these is a, is a messianic character. Because it says in verse 16, In this way he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the rebellion of the Israelites. So now what else is getting atoned? The temple. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Somehow the, the, the most holy place, the Kadosh uh, Lekudoshim, okay, the most holy place just beyond the parochet, the Chechal, has become corrupted by sin. What does that teach us? Anything within human range gets corrupted. Yeah. Sin is infectious. Right? You know, sits, it's, you know, God says, get sin out of the camp. Sin is infectious. It's so infectious, it can even infect the Holy of Holies, which is mind-boggling when you think about it. Is that why Moses moved the tent of meeting out the camp to the outside? Yeah, the head, yes, exactly. They do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting, Aaron, how you know the contamination is through phases because it's first more of the common people. They their decontamination is at the the brazen altar, and then the Levites. It's in the you know on the uh, altar of incense, and then eventually the holy of holies with the uh, the high priest. So it's interesting. It's kind of like this. Uh, it's like in degrees of decontamination. Yep, and then you have degrees of ways of getting rid of it. Blood mm -hmm. of a goat bull here, blood of a goat there. But we, we atone for a priest, we atone for his household, and then we atone for a, a holy place. And so sin is infectious, so what else is infectious? Uncleanness. Yeah, uncleanness, but also the, the positive. Holiness yeah. is infectious, yeah. right? Our salt and our light in the world spreads it okay? and so um, holiness is contagious and sin is contagious and so um, and so uh, inanimate objects can become infected by sin inanimate objects can become infected by holiness now we don't often like to think of that way but you get, you know, oh, we don't like Catholics and they're they're and the Greek Orthodox and their big attraction to holy objects but there are holy objects. The Ark of the Covenant was a very holy object. 
Okay, the Staff of Aaron was a very holy object. The Holy Handkerchief of Antioch was a very holy object. Okay, there are lots of holy objects. And uh, holiness can actually be transferred onto a thing, just like sin can. And, uh, it might not be something that we like to admit, but she's there. Okay, and so you, in the Day of Atonement, let's, let's atone for the priests. Let's atone for the holy place. Now we better atone for the people. And uh, so verse, uh, verse 17, no one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement for the holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. So he's doing it for himself, he's doing it for the temple, and he's doing it for the house of Israel, and nobody else sees. This is a ritual of mystery, okay? The unseen cleansing. Okay, there are many things that Yeshua has done that we will never see, and we're just thankful that He has done that. Uh, then He comes out of the uh, to the altar that is before the Lord to make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. We'll sprinkle some of the blood on it and the finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. So the altar is also cleansed. Okay, so the parochet, the altar. Um, you've got the, the people of Israel and the priests. You've got a multiple number of atonements. Hence, in Hebrew, Yom HaKippurim, okay, the Day of Atonements. When Aaron is finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins. And he's to put it on the goat's head. Then he shall take the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on it all the sins of the remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Okay, so what's interesting about that? You don't kill the goat? No, you don't. You put all the sins on the goat and you don't kill it. So, um, you know, it's good Protestant theology, particularly reform, which loves to talk about Jesus as our atonement. Yet, when you actually get to the goat that actually has all the sins on you, uh, you don't kill it. You actually dump them all on Azazel, which is very interesting. But what's, what's another interesting thing? I've, I've read this a few times. We've already made atonement. What have we made atonement for prior to this event? The, the son of the nation. Correct. We've already atoned for them. We've already atoned for the temple, already atoned for the altar, already atoned for the house of Aaron and, and Israel. Where are the rest of the sins coming from then? Unintentional? That's a good question. Maybe <laughs> all, all the nations, yeah? Maybe. It's a mystery. And perhaps because it's a mystery, we then start to expand on the theology. But, uh, but you don't kill this goat. This one, you dump on, on Azazel. And uh, that has a, for me, uh, for, those, for those of us who read some of these other, other books that aren't in our Bibles or they're in other people's Bibles, um, it gets kind of cool and exciting because in the, in the Second Temple period, for first and Second Temple period, um, Azazel, the rebellious angels, did something that was so bad, God was so annoyed that not only did he capture them and, and lock them up in, in, in 
Tartarus or Sheol or whatever we want to call it. But one of them he dumped in the desert and he says, every single year you put the entire sins of Israel on this guy. This is how much I'm unhappy with him. You see that same uh, tension that God has with um, Amalek in, in, in Exodus 17, where God fights Amalek and he says at the end, he goes, I will have war with this tribe forever. And you think, why? You're God. This is a human tribe. Just snap your fingers. They're dead. You know, you rain fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. You flood the world. Get rid of them. But sometimes there's something that so ticks God off that he says, oh, no, this one I'm, we're, we're going to keep fighting. Okay, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. And uh, he wars with Amalek, which gives us this sort of anti-Messiah anti spirit, right? The spirit of Amalek who appears every generation to fight the Lord. And there's something about Azazel and his rebellion that God says, no, every year you dump, you dump uh, sin on him. You, you, you throw all the refuse, all the waste, everything that's so bad. You get it out of Israel and you put it on that guy because I'm, I'm actually angry. And, um, and that expression, you know, woe behold whoever gets becomes gets into the hands of the Lord you know, when he's angry. Um, we, we don't want uh, to get to that section. But the God carries the sins into a remote place, and, uh, and, and uh, we presume it does, but no one actually physically kills it. Can I jump in? Do you think that when Aaron sprinkles the blood, just going back to that, on the people to cleanse the people to take away their sins, it says here in verse 22 that the, um, the goat is actually for their iniquity. Because in Isaiah 6, it says the, the cult takes away your sin is, um, yeah. is cleansed and your iniquities are purged. Yeah. So is this maybe the iniquity part that the goat's carrying, where their sin was cleansed? It, it could be. The, the beautiful thing about the mystery is because it's, it's, it's not explained, you move from mystery into theology. So exactly what you're saying is the way we begin to talk. And not only that, in about hopefully 10 minutes or so, I'm going to read from our little prayer book some of this mystery, and, and you'll go, oh, my gosh, you know, that sounds so <laughs> New Testament-y. But, um, but, it, but it comes from this, this mystery that's going on. We don't get to see what, Aaron the high priest does. It's a mystery. We don't get to see what Yeshua does when he ascended and, and went into the, into, the, into the most holy place. It is a mystery. We get hints of it. We acknowledge it. We understand it is being done, but we can't actually uh, um, uh, say 100% this is what it means because it's un, undefined. And perhaps... That's what happens. Aaron, one thing I'd like to chip in is the, which is very interesting in this context because of these two types of atonements that are talked about here, yep. is the headline phrase used by John the Baptist when he realizes who Jesus is. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There you so go. Yeah. You've got the Lamb sacrifice there, obviously alluding to what happened with, uh, in the binding of Isaac. But then this taking away of the sins. Yes, you put all the sins on and he goes away from Israel. And you don't see what happens, but he goes away. 
and we and we and we when we smack the evil one at the same time, okay, we get him a good nose rubbing as well. And and that's um, fantastic. Kim yeah, yeah, if I understand um, what he's trying to say, that um, when John John said that behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, um, usually it is the goat that is alluded to the sin offering. Um, if you read in the in the Torah, most of the time it's the goat that is alluded to the sin offering, and it's calling the Lamb of God. But the Lamb is identified with the Passover. So I don't know how he was connecting the Passover and the and the sin offering together in this situation, because yeah. Um, yeah. fair enough, and that, that that's that's a good thing, you know. Why is this Messiah come at Passover and not at Yom Kippur? However, let's I'm going to acknowledge it right now as well. The Dead Sea sect community believed that the Messiah would come at Yom Kippur. And so um, uh, for those that would like, the actual scroll is 11Q13, the scroll of Melchizedek. I know we've read it in our discussions here before. And it says... That uh, first of all, it acknowledges that the Messiah, his name is Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is is Elohim. Okay? Melchizedek is God. So you got a you got a Jewish community one hundred years prior to Jesus acknowledging that the Redeemer is God Himself, and they say that this that the day that He comes and does all these wonderful things is the Day of Atonement, and so that they're linking. The, the cleansing of the sins, the cleansing of Israel, the sort of driving away uh, uh, all the sins of Israel onto onto Azazel. Later on, they call him Belial um, to be the, the the day of of of, uh, of atonement. But the other side of mainstream Judaism, the Lamb of God was the Pesach Lamb, and so which was killed, not not killed, which is the one you find. Yom Kippur. So you get one that is killed and one that isn't. You get two. Okay. Oh, very interesting. All right. So let's keep those thoughts floating around out there. As we keep. I had a quick, uh, uh, in, in, something interesting, you know, how it says in Hebrews that the, the blood of, uh, let me see what's up. You know, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Yep. And then the other thing is, um, in, in, it's, it's in uh, Jeremiah 31, 34, where it says, "For I will forgive their iniquity, and I remember their I will remember their sin no more." So the Azazel, in a sense, it's just getting it's just it's you know it's gone. It's 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 you know from the memory, it's just deleted. That's right. God remembers their sin no more. Can God forget? No, <laughs> He chooses not to remember, which is a great thing that God can do. And it is possible for some humans, right? Some humans can have such grievous offense and they can say, I'm going to choose not to remember this one. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's a, 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 a God-like attitude you know, when we're, we're to, to mimic the Lord in that, in that way. Uh, very good. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a lot of mystery that's attached. There's a lot of other verses that are appearing around all over uh, the Bible, and then they throw it all together on on the current version of Yom Kippur, which is now singular. 
okay? So in the 10 days of voyage which we are in now, these are special days where we do our best to make our relationships right with each other, right? Okay, and so um, on Yom Kippur, you're going to spend a large amount of time seeking forgiveness between you and God. Going to, you're going to say a prayer called Al-Chet. First, you're going, to, you're going to say all the stupid things I've said with my, my mouth. I didn't really mean it. I want my yes to be yes and my no to be no. Please make my oaths actually count. You're going to list all of the sins you've ever done, 44 different sins. Most of them are going to have to do with the tongue. And you're going to confess and make yourself right with God on Yom Kippur. But you have 10 days prior to that to actually get forgiven uh, with your fellow men. So during the 10 days of war, Jewish people contemplate whom you may have wronged during the year, and then you try and seek forgiveness from them. So you want forgiveness, you want to offer forgiveness to receive forgiveness. Offering forgiveness is essential to receive forgiveness from God on Yom Kippur. So this idea of forgiveness for forgiveness can be found all over uh, Second Temple period uh, texts. And they're not just, not just in the Gospels, which are a Second Temple period text. And a, and, a, and a famous one is in the book of Ben Sirah. Everyone's heard of the book of Ben Sirah or Sirach? Okay. Um, in chapter 28, okay, uh, one of the poignant phrases of that, it says, Forgive your neighbor's injustice, then when you pray, your own sins will be forgiven. Okay? Forgive your neighbor's injustice, and then your own sins will be forgiven. Which is exactly the same theology you find in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? What does Yeshua teach us to pray? He says, Father, forgive us our sins because we forgive we others. Right? So our relationship with God is interdependent with our relationship with our neighbor. This is a second temple period uh, outgrowth, and it's, it's become part of Yom Kippur's thoughts in relation to getting right with God. Because it says in Leviticus, your sins will be clean. Okay, it doesn't tell you how, but it just is going to happen. But the 10 days of all proceeding to that, let's make ourselves right with our neighbor so that on the day of Yom Kippur, we can make sure that we're right with the Lord. That same theology you find in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if you are presenting your offering at an altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, what do you do? You leave your offering at the altar, you go your way, and first you are reconciled to your brother. So that you have 10 days to get right man to man and one day to get right man to God. Now that's an interesting number, isn't it? Okay, one is to ten. So the Jewish people take very seriously this idea of making sure that we're right with each other, okay? making sure that we as a community are correct because that uh, you've got to chase sin away from the camp. It's going to keep the presence of God in the camp. It's gonna, and, uh, and then when it comes time for us to ask for forgiveness, we also can get forgiven. And so this idea of repentance is... Um, uh, very, very, a, a major part of the prayers that are going to be said on the day. And um, obviously we're not killing any animals anymore. And so, uh, and we haven't killed animals for a very long time. Um, 
And so yet it says in Leviticus that uh, your sins will be cleaned, will be cleansed. Okay, so you do have a very promise that this will happen. How? Doesn't say. And uh, one important book that is read on this day is which book? Anyone know? Jonah. Jonah. Okay, so out of the different books of the Bible, when you have a festival, um, various passages of the Bible are read, sometimes special books, uh, for the book of Ruth, for Shavuot, for example. But for Yom Kippur, in the afternoon, okay, after you said your afternoon prayer, you, you will mention, um, uh, you will read the book of Jonah. What's so special about the book of Jonah, I hear you ask. Good question. Yeah got lots of repentance in it it's got lots of repentance and what's who who is the prophet jonah being sent to the ninevites the nations the 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 big bad guys in the region yes the big bad guys gentiles oh hang on a second so on the most holy day of the jewish year we're going to read a book about Gentiles repenting. Does anyone see some tension here? <laughs> we're not going to passages about how all Israel, you know, poured sackcloth and ashes and then we rebuilt the altars and did the reforms of Josiah. No. On Yom Kippur, the most holy day, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, where it even trumps the Sabbath, we're going to pick up the book of Jonah and we're going to read about God saying Gentiles repent. Because repentance is for the entire world. Jewish people already know that. It says in Psalm 90 that repentance has been made even before the creation of the world. And the universe is sustained on the idea of repentance. Rabbis will even say, you can't sin during the year and say, oh, Yom Kippur will forgive me. That can't happen. Repentance has to be true and heartfelt. And it becomes independent of actually sacrifices. And so uh, uh, the repentance, a uh, key verse in Jonah, th uh, the book of Jonah, is chapter 3, verse 10. So um, we have the uh, Neville. Can you read Jonah 3, 10 from your, from your ESV? You got it? Okay. Sitting there, okay. Uh, Hosea 3, uh, Jonah 3, verse 10 says, um, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Yep. Okay. So in uh, my version, it says, God saw the deeds of the Ninevites. Do you have that? So what did God see? Did he see them offer a sacrifice? He saw, he saw their deeds, that they had turned from their evil ways, and he had compassion on them. So repentance here doesn't involve a sacrifice. What does it involve? Humbleness. Humility. It does. 
Repentance, isn't it? Repentance. And turning around, a change of life. God saw it. God saw something. Repentance is an action. So when Zacchaeus wants to repent from stealing money from people, what does he have to do? He, he makes up money. Make restitution. Yes. Re so it's not enough just to go to Jesus. Jesus, I'm really sorry. I stole from all these guys. And Jesus goes, yes, no problem, man. You're forgiven. He does the reparation. Back. Exactly. Repentance is an action. And that's, that's something we need to learn. That's something we can learn. If you're going to learn anything from Yom Kippur. How do we make restitution? God saw the deeds of the Ninevites, but they didn't involve a sacrifice, but there's an action. So uh, now there are obviously going to be times where you can't do. I mean, you're on your deathbed and, you know, you can't physically get out your bed, um, you know, but... Aaron, sorry to interrupt. Is this way James steps in and says, I'll show you my faith by my work? By my actions, yeah. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's all, this, it's all interlinked. And what, what happens in, on Yom Kippur is you have this very interesting, uh, there's this mystery that goes on from the Hebrew Bible. We've got a series of atonements that are being made. Got a variety of sacrifices. There's actually 10. Okay. Once you get to Numbers 29, verse 7, it lists 10 sacrifices. Nine of them are killed. One of them is not. There's a series of atonements. And finally, at the end, when you've already done all your atoning, you shovel your sin on a goat, which goes away and doesn't die. But it gets dumped on the devil or the, the demon. In the book of Jonah, we discover that repentance doesn't involve sacrifices, is completely universal, applies to the Gentiles, and has some sort of deeds attached to it. Repentance is an action. Ooh, that's kind of cool. Uh, and yes, so, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, just to postpress the fact, you know, when you talk about um, God's soul in the life of the people from Nineveh, um, it's actually very, very interesting because it's the same word that the Lord used when he was talking about Ahab. Remember, Ahab was a, was a real bad guy. Yeah. And um, he did a lot of things, and there was a judgment passed upon him that he was going to be eaten by dogs and things like that. Yeah. And he humbled himself, and God told them, Elijah the prophet, he says, see it, that Ahab has humbled. Can you see how Ahab had humbled himself? You know, God was yep. calling... I, uh, the, the prophet to see this action of this man. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Aaron, may I ask a question? Is this also the principle of emunah? Faithfulness. Yes. Yeah, it's actually an act. It's active, isn't it? So. It is. So the, the 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 message that lies behind Yom Kippur is not that you can't drive your car. It's not that the lights of the traffic light don't work. It's not that you can't go to work or that you can't actually eat. Those are important to make the day holy. Okay? Those are great actions to sanctify the day. But they are not the goal of Yom Kippur. The goal of Yom Kippur is to teach people how to repent. That's actually the goal. And, it, and it's to remind us that the message of Yom Kippur is actually threefold. Repentance is universal for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Okay? Repentance is communal. 
right? Unlike the prevailing view that repentance is a transaction between you and God or you and your priest, okay? Now, that's one side of the story. It is between you and God, but it is also between you and your fellow man. Repentance is communal. To be right with God, we have to be right with our neighbor. And lastly, repentance, sincere repentance, means that there's a change of behavior. Okay? That's where you know you've got yourself some good repentance. Okay? And um, so those are some of the things that uh, we get to learn on that side. But um, there's another part that I want to add as part of this mystery, okay? So we've got, let's, let's go back to the, the Hebrew Bible here. We've got high priest uh, walking behind a parochet, can't see anything, we've got blood, we're definitely going to get cleansed from sin, we're going to put our sins on a scapegoat and we're going to send him away. Um, all kinds of themes that are wrapped up in, in that and in this temple uh, in, in, the, in the temple ritual that occurs, most of it that you can't see. And, so, and yet we know that our sins are taken away. And people scratch their heads, how does this get taken away? And so they, they look around for other Bible verses. And, of course, uh, Vida, you mentioned already that from the prophet Isaiah that, you know, that the Messiah, will, he will bear our sins and he will bear our iniquities, right, which is that, that plural. And I was, I was reading this uh, Jewish prayer book, okay? It's, okay? it's got nothing. This is a stock standard Jewish prayer book called the Machzor Chaim Yehezkiel, right? This is the prayer book for Yom Kippur. It's uh, rather large, um, and it's got Hebrew on one side and English on the other. And it's got all the five prayers that you pray uh, during the day. Great fun. Well, for the, I was going through it uh, a couple of days ago, and I was reading the prayer that you pray in the afternoon called Musaf, which is the, the fifth additional prayer from the verb La'asof, to add. And that's uh, the one you pray after you've done, um, read the book of Jonah, and you're going to start uh, saying some more prayers. And um, uh, in the... In the Part of the prayer is called the Kedushah, which is a very, very old prayer. There's large sections of it in Aramaic. And, um, and it starts with the guy standing up going, Holy, 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 you know, is the Lord God Almighty. Okay? It's called the, the Holy, Holy, Holy. Um, and then uh, the Chazan, the guy who's leading the prayers, starts saying a variety of, 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 of chants. Well, um, on page, okay, I'm going to quote it definitely here, page 534 of your nice, lovely prayer book, uh, it has the Kedushah, and then there's this little phrase that says, most congregations recite the standard festival Kedushah. Okay. Then it says, some recite an enhanced version. And it's found on page 827. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what the enhanced version is. And I wonder why only some recited. So I went and had a look. And so on page 827, this is all for the recording in case there's uh, uh, Jewish people 
listening and really want to get angry at me, go right ahead. Um, because I'm just quoting from the prayer book. And so 827, you end up with the full Kedushah, which is the older prayer. It is not translated into English. So there's a, they don't translate this into English. Oh, I wonder why. Well, lucky for me, I can still read Hebrew. And, um, yeah, and uh, it starts off, Melifne uh, Bereshit, which is uh, uh, literally um, prior to creation. It's a, it's a series of prayers called prior to creation. You start by saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And prior to creation, the following things have happened. And uh, it starts, Melifne Bereshit, Nave Yinun, uh, hashit. Neve means oasis. Okay, so prior to creation, oasis. Don't really know what that means. Like, I know what the word means, but I don't really know what they're trying to say. Mm. Then it's got yinun uh, hashit. So you've established oasis and you've established yinun. And you, you scratch your head and you go, oh my gosh, what are they trying to say? Why can't they just speak English? I mean, Hebrew or something. Okay. Um, neve, when, when, when you have a prayer, Neve, Neve means the temple, the oasis, the, the sanctity, the thing that gives you life in the desert is the, is the temple. So before God, before the creation of the world, God had established a temple and he had established Yinon. What is Yinon? I hear you ask. Okay. Now you've got to read Psalm 72, verse 17. And again, where's our little ESV dude? Okay, Psalm 72, 17, because most translations will not say what's actually in Hebrew. Okay. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Okay, there's a lot of hymns in there, which is excellent. Um, and, and however, verse 17 actually says this. His name will endure forever. Before the sun. His name will, will endure forever before the, before the sun, the world. His name is Yinon which is not translated anybody's thing. Okay. And everybody will be blessed because of him. And all the Gentiles, all the nations, will rejoice, will be really happy. There's something about this guy whose name is Yinun, okay, where everybody's going to be really happy because we get a blessing from him. And uh, it's a psalm. And... There are different names for the Messiah. Yinon is one of them. Another one is Shiloh. How do you know this? Because it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Yeah, what does that mean? I mean, Shiloh is a place, but, but we don't understand what the word Shiloh means. And so one of the names of the Messiah is Shiloh. One of the names of the Messiah is Yinon. One of the names of the Messiah in Isaiah is Menachem. And, uh, and so... Uh, 
So here you have a prayer that says, since the create before the creation of the world, God established the temple and Yinon. The Messiah. All right. Okay. And uh, and then it says, okay, um, that it uses the word talpiot, which I don't understand what that means. It normally means that the top of a mountain, but I don't know what that means. So the from the top of a mountain, from the beginning, uh, he prepared any, before any people, he decided to let his presence reside there. Um, it says, uh, if God's fierce wrath is incited, the Holy One will awaken. And our wealth has not been taken away from us. Our rock has not touched us. Our righteous Messiah has turned away from us because we have acted foolishly and there is no one else to justify us. This is a prayer on page 827 of the, of, which is prayed on Yom Kippur. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgression he bears and he is pierced for our transgressions. He carries our sins on his shoulders and we find forgiveness because of him and by his wounds we are healed forever we are a new creation from the time of creation and then it says to summon us to the mountain of lebanon not quite sure why it says that a second time through yinon now that is an interesting prayer that on the day when you finish reading the repentance of the Gentiles, when you're contemplating deeds, when you've made sure you're right with a man, there's a mystery of something going on behind the parochet, which you don't have except in heaven. And then you turn around and you start praying. Since the creation of the world, you made the temple, which I can't see right now. And you made the Messiah, whom I can't see right now. But I know that I can't, I can't, get through with my own sins because my own sins are, are terrible and uh, because of my sins the messiah has turned away from me but he bears my iniquities doesn't say that he dies okay the prayer doesn't say he dies the prayer is just quoting um uh the prayer is just quoting various fragments of isaiah 53 and it's not doing it in order it's got it around different ways um but it does say he will carry our sins on his shoulder. He will take away our iniquities, which is interesting because the goat also takes away our sins, Sir Azazel. And then at the end of the prayer, it says he will, uh, he will summon us once again to Mount Lebanon. I don't know why it uses that as a, as a phrase, but it, that's part of the prayer. A second time. So there are two advents of this Messiah. Now, isn't that interesting? And, uh, and this is found all in your prayer book. Uh, I hadn't actually recognized it before. Okay. So uh, Yvonne, yeah, the Yinon, why, you got it right. Y -Y -Y N-O-N, Yinon. Thanks. Um, and uh, for those that want to get it, a Jewish prayer book, uh, start on page uh, 534, then go to 827. Uh, unfortunately, the back of the prayer book is not in, in translated into English. I wonder why. Okay. Um, but it does show us that 
the mystery of Yom Kippur in the Hebrew Bible is a mystery. And over time, it has developed some beautiful theology. It gets to teach us how to actually repent. It reminds us that repentance is universal. It is communal. And it has to be sincere. And then one of the final parts of this mystery, which involves part of this sort of scapegoat, goes out, comes back, you know, doesn't die type thing, but carries all of our sins, they decide that that's actually the Messiah which we would already accept, but is acknowledged in this prayer on Yom Kippur that uh, the Messiah, Yinon, the Messiah will bear our sins and somehow you have this second advent. Although, to be honest, it's just one sentence. The end of the prayer literally to me doesn't make a lot of sense, but it does in, in the idea of a, of a second coming, that God assembles us to Mount Lebanon. I'm not sure why that's there. But then the second time uh, will be through through Yinon. So it's an interesting interesting prayer um, there. All right, uh, Aaron. Yeah, it's interesting to note that um, in Jewish eschatology, they've always had the idea of Yeshua ben uh, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, uh, oh. the both Messiah. But I think for most explanation, they see it as two different persons. That yep. one person. Um, yep. That's yep, you're right. Yeah. Yep, and they, and they say that Mashiach ben Yosef dies and Mashiach yeah. ben David comes and resurrects him. Right? In, and so yeah. that's, that's one. one. It's not, it's not, there are many traditions about the, the two messiahship, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, but one tradition is one re resurrects the other. Um, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls doesn't do the two Messiah thing. They do the one Messiah thing, but they make him God and they call him Melchizedek and he comes on Yom Kippur. But what's interesting in this Yom Kippur prayer book, they call the Messiah Yinon and they have him the same Yinon coming twice, which is interesting. They don't do so. So it's interesting in different yeah. of Judaism. They understand uh, one, one tries to make two Messiahs and one acknowledges Maybe it's just the one guy. I also heard, like, depending on how you act, you could either usher in, uh, you know, Ben Yosef, Messiah Ben Yosef, or Messiah Ben David. So depending on your your deeds, they say you can. He can come. You can, of course, hasten the day. They're always like hasten the day. But then, which spirit will he come as? You know, a conquering king or whatever. Or like a suffering. The concept of being able to usher in the Messiah is in the New Testament too, right? You know, that we yeah. in Peter to hasten the day. And uh, so there is this, there is a concept that, um, that our actions can drive the presence of God away or invite him in. So um, what are they? I don't think we have to get too hung up on it, although it's always nice to have a good discussion. Let's all just remember the commandment of the Messiah. Go forth, make disciples. Okay. But Aaron, when, when you have your meetings with the rabbis, can you please tell them to say Baruch Abba B'Shem Yeah, and then, then hopefully somebody will come. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So. Hey, Aaron, I have, a, I have a, just kind of want to wrap this around my brain. So uh, the two goats, one goes in for decont decontamination. The other one uh, takes away, would it be intentional and non-intentional sins? One goat is killed and his blood is put on the altar 
and he makes right. atonement for Israel. Another goat gets all the sins of Israel, which you scratch your head and you go, yeah, but we just took care of this with the other goat. But that's this part of the mystery. Two goats, one dies, one doesn't. One wanders off and takes judgment and smacks the devil with it. Okay? <laughs> you know, the two Messiah ideas, the, the Messiah Ben Yosef, the, 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 right, the righteous king, the, the, two, the two themes of Yinon that you see in this prayer book. Is the, this, this sort of concept shows up all throughout uh, 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 the Bible and, and Jewish tradition. And, and so we know him as the Messiah Yeshua. Uh, we know what he did when he first came. We know he's the Passover lamb. And we know when he's coming back, you know, he will uh, finish off the redemption and defeat the devil. Aaron, you mentioned that, like, uh, Azazel, the, the one that this, you said smacks the devil with. Isn't that precisely what Yeshua did when he went down? He made a spectacle of all things? That's right. The, 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 uh, Paul... Uh, well, one of the epistle writers says, you know, he made a spectacle of the devil. You know, he, he took him to town and, uh, and you get what's called the harrowing of hell, which alluded to, but then gets fleshed out in the Middle Ages. Right? We, really, we really want to have a good descriptive, probably to have something to read to the kids when they went to bed. Um, and, uh, but it was a good story and we really smacked the devil around. Um, uh, Jewish tradition had already done that with, uh, with, with different books. Um, and yet at the same time, we still have a devil that patrols around like a roaring lion. We still have to guard ourselves and we still, you know, don't, we, we only finally throw him into hell at the end, at the last bits of revelation. But the, to just, just in terms of summary again, just to remember that uh, Yom Kippur while not being in the book of uh, Deuteronomy or in the New Testament per se, um, has developed to a, a, a really good holiday to reflect on the true nature of repentance, that repentance is an action, repentance is for all people, repentance involves a change of behaviour, repentance is a community action. Uh, many, much of those themes are also reflected in the New Testament as well. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's, um, a good day for us to remind and reflect on, on some of these options. At the same time, please pray for the Jewish people, particularly if they go to a synagogue that actually does the full Kedushah. Okay? So the guys that are going to do the full one are going to sit down on Monday afternoon after reading the book of Jonah, and they're going to have a guy get up, and he's going to say, okay, we've talked a lot about repentance, we've talked a lot about our sins, but let's face it. The, the Messiah is the one that takes away our sins for us. That's what the prayer says, literally. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good, really good prayer. I had never seen it before until only a couple of days ago. And uh, I was walking around the office like a bit of a uh, schoolboy. You know, I go, Ooh, I want to show everybody something. So I went up to uh, the guy who was an ex-Chabad member who actually does our, our books and said, Come on, man, read this with me. And he's like, oh, my gosh, this is really, really, really old Hebrew. I said, yeah, you better, better explain it to me because I don't understand all of it. Um, Aaron, but, another question in terms of, the, like, the, of course, the four, four uh, feasts, um, Yeshua has already completed the, the spring feast, now the fall. So, you know, uh, Yom Teruah would be ushering in the king. But, I mean, so would the second coming be on Yom Kippur? 
The Dead Sea Scroll people would say yes, they would because they want they want the the. Um, it is interesting that uh, there is this prayer on Yom Kippur, and I cannot work out when this prayer appeared. It doesn't say when this, it just says this is the Kedushah. And when you go research the the prayer Kedushah, it doesn't tell you the start date. It just tells you you do it. Um, it's quite interesting. If you read the book of Joel, then it talks about the day of the Lord, and there very clearly it says about going into repentance with sackcloth and... Is that not implying the Day of Atonement? Uh, it could be. Could be. Uh, yeah, it, it could be because the Dead Sea Scroll community who were, who were priests had, had, who had all these scriptures, somehow they, they came to the conclusion, no, the Messiah comes at Yom Kippur. Whereas the rest of the Jewish community, the majority, said, oh, no, no, Messiah comes at, at uh, Passover. And it might be that it's, uh, that, that it's both. I don't know. But then... What was Sukkot for then? Anyway, we could, we could have to, that's for another talk, okay? <laughs> yes, Aaron, Aaron, I agree to the concept of um, um, the, it's been the day of the Lord, because if you read in the book of Isaiah, he alludes the day of the Lord as the day of judgment. And Yom Kippur is usually seen as judgment day. Um, although the judgment starts from um, Rosh Hashanah, but the judgment is sealed or um, given on Yom Kippur. So when we see the day of the Lord appears in the in the prophet, it's usually called the day of judgment. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Right. You know that well, it's a day of judgment. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it gets very confusing at the end to which of the festivals that we can tie to the return. However... The point is, these festivals still teach us stuff. Vis-a-vis whenever, whether, whether the Lord returns on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, whether he returns tomorrow, or whether he returns on Yom Kippur or Sukkot, each of these has something to teach us. And I hope, and uh, the, the next video of Yom Kippur that comes out, I think, tomorrow, I hope will explain that these festivals still have something to teach us. And the big one for Yom Kippur is, is what really is repentance. Because we do need to ask ourselves, do we really know how to repent? We say we do, but do we really know? Uh, it's obviously very important. Okay. Uh, Thank you very much, Aaron. That was great. All right, guys. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Yeah. I mean, can I just ask us probably what seems a silly question? You know how the, the Jewish people, a lot of the Orthodox Jews now, they, they swing a chicken around the head to transfer the sins. What, how, how do they think that works? What's the thinking okay. behind this is, it? They call it kaporet. Yeah. Uh, kaporet. The, the, because uh, because the, 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 the verb lekafer uh, doesn't really have a proper English translation, um, the, the day has become where what you do is you swirkle a chicken around and you, uh, a, a hen for a female, a male for a male, rooster for a male, and you kill it and then you donate the chicken to charity. But, but it covers you of your sins. And you do this during the 10 days of awe, even before. It is, a, it is a tradition that started really small. It's a modern tradition it is not, you don't, you don't see it a thousand years ago. 
Rashi doesn't mention it, um, but it's gaining traction. Like about 10 years ago, it was about 5% of the community. Now it's getting even more. Okay. Um, why? I don't know why. Okay. Um, it's, I, I honestly don't know why it's gaining traction. Rabbis constantly come out and say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Um, but they do. More and more of them. You know, I had a thought. You said covering, and it opened my mind for a new interpretation because, you know, I grew up with it, so I've never trying to break it down and trying to figure out the translation way too much. So I think, yeah, it's covering, and if you want to expand it, you would say, like, paying for your wrongdoings. So I think, actually, this ritual or tradition, okay, I mean, I, I would never, like, I would never try to convince somebody who's saying, oh, it doesn't make any sense for me. Like, mm -hmm. that's something that I can relate to. But I think there is something that you feel like you're paying for your wrongdoing, you know? Well, so they, they, even they, if it's just symbolic, yeah, but, and it's symbolic because, you know, sometimes it's half a shekel. It's like really not about the amount. It's the, that's the, right. It's and what happens is you, you yourself don't even sit under the chicken. Okay, you just go to a table oh, and this, this, this little 12-year-old kid like takes your money and gives you a little receipt. Meanwhile, just off to the side is this uh, uh, orthodox guy swinging a chicken around his head. And I know, it's terrible. Yeah, I know, but that's what they do. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you just imagine you go, oh my gosh. Yeah, that, um, how, how did this come about? It, it, it's interesting that these traditions occur. Um, and it, it is... It's like it is charity. I saw a whole lecture about charity. Yeah. Just giving charity as a habit, it's healthy yeah. for you because you just, it's yeah. like, you know, you develop your system of giving and, and getting, you know, in and out. And well, also of, yeah, giving as a natural. So there's some, some spiritual component to the action of giving that is actually a blessing. Um, the, the, the point of our hopefully the evening um, was to show that as the tradition and the theology developed, it's developed into quite a beautiful look at uh, what is true repentance. And uh, is what I hope that uh, is what we got to. Um, hey, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Um, thank you. You know, the Feast of Booths will be uh, celebrated in the Millennial Kingdom, and I noticed in your comments you said as well Passover. Yes. I know it talks about Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, so let us celebrate the feast. Sure. Where do you see that in terms of the millennial kingdom? Which okay, well, first of all, most sections of, uh, of our festivals in the Hebrew Bible will always say as a lasting ordinance, right? Mm -hmm. And um, But Yeshua says it. He says, I'm not going to drink any more from this mm -hmm. cup until kingdom of heaven. That's right. Right? So he's, he's sat with his disciples and says, I don't do this anymore. But I will. And, uh, and so the Messiah himself says, we're celebrating Passover in the future. We're going to celebrate Tabernacles in the future. I've got a feeling we might probably celebrate them all in the future. And I've probably got a feeling that the Lord God himself will probably give us all the truth of it. We'll all sit there and go, well, I'm God's back. No, didn't get that at all. You know, like that's <laughs> awesome. Um, and, uh, and I think that's going to be, going to be a good thing. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. 
You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.